You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. This is The Comedian's Comedian. Today I am talking to Finn Taylor. Uh, He is such a funny act. I think in the show notes I called him thunderously funny, which seems absolutely fair. He is so good and he's so good at annoying everybody. He is fearlessly provocative. Uh, He has crucially done the reading on the subjects that he's talking about. So I think he's earned himself the right to say some fairly outrageous things. And we will talk a little bit about how he makes uh, new material nights a misery for himself by seeing uh, what's the most extreme thing he can say and then attempting to walk it back. And I think that compared to a lot of comics who cover similar territory, Finn is really worthy of your attention because he... I mean, not to say that there are that many comics who cover the sort of territory in the depth that he does. He really applies himself to the to sort of leveraging the uncertainty that uh, that he thinks uh, a lot of people feel. Um, there is a tendency, of course, in, in comedy and in society, and particularly on social media, to need to identify yourself as in one camp or another. Are you woke or anti-woke? Are you, I mean, both of those things are sort of meaningless. Does cancel culture exist? In, well, in whatever form that uh, it is understood to exist, because that phrase can mean several different things, um, and depending on what you think it means, it can uh, you can argue for or against it. But uh, what Finn does that is really interesting is he really gets inside of the space in the debate and doesn't pick a side. And uh, really, I'm not just on those debates as well, but plenty of others. And um, his stuff on race in his in his 20, I think, 17 show, Whitey McWhiteface, maybe 2018, um, which was really his breakthrough show, was so, so funny and so interesting. And he really just manages to get touchy ground, find the space inside it and turn it into very, very successful punchlines. But it's fascinating talking to him about his disinclination to please any particular group. Um, which I think is really, it's very unusual that you find comics who wish to, who wish to challenge orthodoxy as it is regarded by both sides. Most people are happy to be wishy-washy liberals like myself, or sort of aggressive liberals less like myself, um, or or to be kind of anti-woke enthusiasts, uh, sort of a smaller number of them, but it seems to be increasing daily. Um, but people... Even people who claim to be challenging the orthodoxy 
often set themselves up in the kind of I'm a free speech warrior camp. And even that is taking a side. And Finn doesn't take any sides, I don't think. And uh, this is just a fascinating interview. He's so funny. And uh, it's a joy to have him on the show. Before we launch into it, the Edinburgh Festival is happening in some form, we hope. Uh, And by the time you hear this, we will have announced that I am going to be doing some shows. And uh, Finn isn't, in fact, because he's just had a tiny baby. Um, But uh, a lot of people who you know and love and who are beloved of this podcast will be doing shows at the Monkey Barrel, uh, the brilliant year-round comedy venue in Edinburgh that uh, is very close to the heart of this podcast and vice versa, I think. Um, I'm going to be on at 3.15, I think, between the 10th and the 15th of August and possibly a few dates after that as well. Now, you won't find these dates, I don't think, on edfringe.com, but you will find them at the Monkey Barrel website, which is monkeybarrelcomedy.com, and if it isn't, I'm sure you'll Google that and <laughs> be able to find it somehow. As ever, with all the research I've done, just Google it. You've got the same access to the internet that I have. The venue's called the Monkey Barrel. There is a huge amount of stuff going on there, and I haven't found out exactly who yet, because at the time of recording this, it hasn't been released. As soon as it is released, I will do a little micro-episode for you to follow this one, um, which tells you about all the stuff that's going on there. I'm so excited, and I'll tell you more about it later, but I'm going to be doing something... Uh, quite unusual and specific for me. So I'll tell you more about that uh, in the middle bit. But now, with that having fully grabbed your attention, let's get back to the uh, the processes, the creative development and the bloody infuriating nature of Finn Taylor. Where shall we start? Here's where we'll start. Um, I... You sent me a brilliant email with a oh, load of links lot. on it. I, know, I sent that and I thought, I really hope you don't watch that in one afternoon because you're going to go mad. There's so... That, I mean... I didn't watch it in one afternoon, but thank you for helping me with the research because almost all of it was brilliant. <laughs> like, genuinely brilliant. The pilots, and I don't know how much we can talk about pilots that are still oh, I don't, I, I, under wraps or whatever. The thing with you and Catherine Bohart... Yeah, that was fun. ...is so good... Yeah, that was a shame. And the thing with um, can I name the show? The other show, the one that's a kind of brass eye style. Yeah, I. I who knows whether that's going to happen or not? I mean, I'm taking it it's not because it's been two years or something. But yeah, but you never know. Let's not name yeah, it just in yeah, case. Okay. But both of them coupled with I re-listened to when Harassi met Sally, which I uh, or probably when Harassi met Sally for the know. joke to work better. I don't, I don't know. know. I, which I saw live. Never said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's so good. You're, you're, and I think one of the things, like the, the, the two things that you particularly have, three, okay, I'll list, I'll list my assumptions as to the things that you have, okay. which make you so exceptionally good. And we will at some point then dive back into you carrying a sort of sponge scourer on stage at the comedy yeah. box. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just completely an arse lick of an episode. No, I don't want it to be that. <laughs> but... I think that you really deftly navigate the kind of ambiguity and the hypocrisy from both sides of an argument. Like you really, you you really gleefully go, I know I'm not supposed to think this, but I do. Yeah. Right? You yeah. do that. You are brilliant at premises. And one of my, like when we get into technical stuff, uh, I really want to know about how you, how you find a, uh, you seem to really quickly go, that's the premise, and then get loads out of it. It's like you, you're quite an American style of comic in that most of your jokes are themselves premises. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I'd not thought of it like that. 
but to me, the premise is a setup, and then you have a punchline. Yeah. So what? So what else would it be? Well, the premise isn't just a setup. I, it's like there's the attitude of I am confused about X, Y, Z to do with gender or have you. There's the attitude, and then your premise will be. Um, I wrote down an example. You said something about if we're all. Um, no one is no one is completely straight or gay. Apparently, the most you can be is ten percent. Uh, the, the most you can be is ninety percent straight, which means I'm ten percent gay. So the premise then becomes, or your premise is, I've never had a gay thought, so I've got one coming up. Yeah. Like, did you know what I mean? Like yeah. that isn't a punchline, is it? And it's no. not really a setup. It's a premise. It's like here's the angle that I'm taking on the subject, and yeah. then all the punchlines fall out of it. Sort of. Although I can't I can't remember the punchline to that joke, but. The punchline would be the completion of the premise in that joke, wouldn't it? Because isn't I can't remember what the lot, but I used to go ten percent gay, which means I don't know. I never had a gay thought, but I know one's coming, and that's the punchline. And so I'm kind of like, yes, but it's it's because then the well maybe it is maybe the punchline and the premise then are the same thing. But do you know what I mean? It's like the the punchline isn't the end point. It, I reckon maybe a punchline that is then in itself a starting point for more exploration yeah. is therefore a premise. It's both. Okay, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe maybe what I'm saying in a really roundabout way is you're... I just don't think that it's like you've got a simple joke with a punchline and then loads of tags. I don't think it's as simple as that. I feel like you get right into the guts of a subject and coupled with that first thing I mentioned, you're really good at exploiting the tension in the things people are... Like, you know... Winding up uh, uh, middle-class people who think they're not hypocrites by exposing hypocrisy. Yes. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you said those things, because that is one of the daunting things about this podcast, is, is meeting your own delusions with reality. <laughs> <laughs> so you think, well, I sort of have an idea of myself, and then I'm going to do this and be confronted with the reality of how people view me. But no, I... I um, yeah, it's not so much hypocrisy as just not subscribing to, you know, the, the two major narratives that are parroted about everything at the moment. Um, and I do believe that, you know, if laughter is a release of tension, then the more tense you make it before, then the harder the laugh. You know, it's like an elastic band. You pull it back, further you pull it back, the harder it snaps. Um so that's very purposeful, you know. When I know I've got a punchline that works, I will happily sit in that filth for a long time before deploying it, you know, the, the escape cord. And everyone's like, oh, thank God. You didn't just leave us hanging with that. <laughs> you know, whatever. So, um, no, the tension thing is definitely purposeful. And it's also why I sort of... Um, well, part of the reason why I'm, I don't, you know, I don't brand myself as someone who is like um, one or the other, you know. Yeah. I'm not like Jeff Norcott going, I'm the Tory guy. I'm not like someone like Josie who's like, I'm the, you know, I'm the, you know, I, I purposefully, partly because I'm not either of those things, but also I'd, I'd want, I want there to be tension in a room. I don't want the people to just be there because they know what I think or yeah. they agree with me or, or I want to be able to surprise them. You know, our job is to surprise people every 30 seconds. And I, you know, so yeah, I, I like that tension in a room. And uh, when I've done the work, I feel like I'm in control of it for an hour or 20 minutes. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm getting it get together, oh, it's going to be a disaster. New material, guys. 
Really? Yeah. Because you've got to, you know, you have to. I, I make no apology for searching for the hardest laugh I can. And by hardest, you mean biggest or most difficult to achieve? Sorry, biggest. I mean, like, you know, gut. I, mean, I want people to laugh in spite of themselves. Yeah. I don't really, you know, for me, the biggest, um, I, I hate to be considered right. <laughs> do you know what I mean I'd hate I'd absolutely hate to do a joke with people like that's a very wry aside I don't I just for whatever reason I just am like I want to get in and I want to hit people in the gut and that you know that is an um, you know you're, you're doing an ambitious jump and when that fails it fails harder mm-hmm. but that in itself is is funny <laughs> or can be rode back and so I do think new material for me is you're you're finding the 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 out the utter like the you're finding the furthest point and then you're probably rowing back from it do you know what I mean in terms yeah. of what an audience will uh tolerate and then you're trying to find out a way of how can I make them comfortable enough but still keep that tension there for them to stay on side for me to get the, to the punchline and it, that means a new material like you're going, look, if, if this audience think I'm a monster, that's just what's going to happen because this is part of the process. Well, the other, the other, the, the third thing, as well as the premises and the, uh, the, the kind of navigation of hypocrisy and the, the kind of exploitation of that is that you do enjoy annoying people. Yes, that, that is... Um... Like, the, in order to create a Finn Taylor, we yeah. have to start with someone who is unafraid yeah. and actually enjoys pissing off everyone because you're positioning because you don't take a side you say stuff that like I can watch when Harassi met Sally which I say him with with what I knew which is the uh, lovely title what's funny is when you have titles that are deliberately stupid you're now I'm now talking about them sincerely as if it's like inside the actor's studio talking about hate or something yeah I did white him at white face yeah you know anyway I can watch that as a liberal person and laugh in spite of myself. And occasionally, the moments when I think, I don't know about that one. Yeah. But this, you know, like, I can't disagree with a lot of it because you're calling me out on my apprehension of stuff and my hypocrisy about stuff. Similarly, I'm sure someone who feels totally differently to me, uh-huh. politically, yeah. can enjoy it in the same way. So you get to annoy everyone mm-hmm. presumably hopefully also please enough of everyone that like you enjoy pissing people off and i wonder yes. my my theory and this is a complete assumption yeah. based on i'm no stranger to complete assumptions <laughs> <laughs> I make quite I, you leaps. were an overweight kid right yes yeah and did you were you bullied it's uh, yeah, I was, but it's slightly more complicated than where I, where I think you're going. But you can carry on. Well, where do you think I'm going? Well, it's probably just like uh, the bully becomes the bully in a way. Is that where you're going? Or Not you're... really, no. But just that you might have been able to, you might have found a sense of purpose and place without needing to rely on being. Uh, the funny kid or the kind of like the loved kid in a community or like, oh, Finn, he's really great. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Your 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 sense of purpose might lie outside of that. My sense of purpose was eating. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're getting at? So the whole kind of like, yeah. Well, tell me, so you... So, well, what I... I've not done any psychoanalysis. This okay. is probably the closest thing I've come is sitting down in front of the... Uh, 
Acast Freud, <laughs> or whoever you're <laughs> pretending to be now. Um, but from my, I mean, I had quite a unique childhood. It wasn't bad at all. My parents are great. You couldn't, you couldn't wish for better people's parents. But um, every school I went to, one of my parents was a teacher. Okay. Uh, and between the ages of seven to thirteen, I I lived in a girls' boarding house because my mum was the head of the girls' boarding house at a private school, and so we lived in a flat in a girls' boarding house, and so I was the boy that lived in the girls' boarding house. Okay. So I, I, I shouldn't have. My life was like a sitcom. Like I shouldn't have been there, and that was the school I went to. So that was my whole identity. Was I? Oh, I'm. He's the kid that's like in a, you know lives with the girls, even though he's a boy. Yeah, and his mum's a teacher, and also this was a this is an elite private school, and the only reason I was there was because in those days teachers' kids got in not not for free, but like sure. it was so heavily discounted that you'd be like, well, we're doing that. Mm-hmm. So I I you know I I don't keep in touch with anyone from from either school because I they were just not really my kind of people, and my mum was very keen to stress. She was like, you know, this is a bubble. This is not a real world these kids are you know from they're not like us in the way that their families are extraordinarily wealthy and so it's like a double outsider thing of being the boy in a girls boarding house your teacher is your mum but also you're the even though you're middle class and comfortable you're the poorest person you know like all your friends have got these insane kind of countryside things and then that continued into secondary school when my dad is a teacher. And uh, at that point, we weren't living in the boarding house anymore, which was great because, you know, mum was basically never around because she was like an on-duty on nurse because these kids were... I'm not trying to judge anyone. Like, some people have different... Some people prioritise, you know, money over family, and that's that's what they do. But my mum was just trying to basically stop these kids from from kind of emotional collapse, you know, because she, she, she's aware of, of um, her and my dad actually are very aware of private schools reputation for creating quite stunted emotional people. And they're trying mm. to do their best to kind of revolutionize that from the inside. And so mum would basically just be like constantly trying to help a girl who was having her first period, whose mum wasn't answering the phone or was trying to, you know, on a few occasions, stop girls jumping off a roof and all this, you know, all this stuff. So mum wasn't really around and we lived in a girls' boarding house and mum was also a teacher and I was fat. And then I went to uh, secondary school and I remember specifically quite early on a teacher who I didn't hadn't met yet in the con room being like, oh, you're Mr. Taylor's son. You're the one we can't tell off. And I remember being like, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously he was joking. But I do think this is part of the reason, in my narrative at least, as to why my act is essentially someone who's never been punched. <laughs> because it's just what can I get away with? Because like that, having teachers as, you know, your first interaction with authority is a, is a teacher, really, isn't it? But when that's your parent who you've seen, you know, whatever it is, stub their toe that morning or, or <laughs> taking a shit with the door open, you're yeah. like, well, you're, you're not a, you know, you're just a, a human. Like oh, or, there's no authority. There's no authority. Has no meaning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, in my head, that is why I have quite a perverse relationship with authority and why um, I, I sort of like annoying people because I sort of, um, I don't know, I, I just feel quite more like an obs- observer than a participant in a lot of, in a lot of life. 
because I think of that of that of being that kind of in that very weird position that I was in as a, in, as a kid. I mean, you know, this could all be bollocks. It's um, you all take your own ideas about what your formative years are to justify why you are the way you are, don't you? So that, and that, to me, is what makes the most sense. I love the notion of your act as someone who's never been punched. <laughs> it is. When it? did you come up with that? When did that occur to you? I don't know. I, I think I've said it before, but I, I, I was just talking to someone. I can't remember. It feels very like... Um, I mean, it's dead on, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's dead on, and one of the thing, one of the the opening joke of, the, of that show was, um, which is 2018 now, was about how you are. Was it the opening joke of that? It was one of your openers. Maybe it was on a TV, but it may even have been the Apollo. The opener was about how you're provocative, which means I'm that privately educated. You're privately educated. No, that's no. Sorry, I'm. Prov- I get called provocative, which means I'm. My material's offensive, but I am privately educated. Exactly, yeah. So that 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 thing, that's, I mean, it's such a great opener because it does tell us everything we need to know about you. Yeah. And, and it really chimes with that idea of you've never been punched. So let's just dig into authority for a bit more. So were there other, what would your, rec- were there any teachers that you felt had authority, either because they were scary or because you respected them? No, yeah, there were, the there were teachers that I did respect and I had great teachers. I felt like I had a really good education. Uh, I feel very you know, privileged to have had the education I did. Um, but it's more about that fact that when you are someone who, you know, there was this thing in the, in the boarding house, there was this like, uh, this thing called house entertainment where the parents would come like once a year and then all the girls would put on like a sort of show. And I was like, well, I'm going to get involved in that. Cause also I come from a, quite a sort of performing family okay. my dad was in a band for years my great great someone on my mum's side was actually a music hall stand-up in mean, front of curtain act who we've got press clippings of him he toured the the empire what was his name oh i, I want to say big willie something but it wasn't <laughs> but he was scottish my mum's scottish and he had okay. like a kilt and he do like a kind of k-brack and I, I should know but my nan has okay. all these press clippings. And my aunt, my great aunt, on my mum's side as well, was on the Blackpool circuit with um, Morecambe and Wise. Oh, my God. And then became one of ITN's first female producers. So it's like, it's sort of like, a, you know, an F-list showbiz family <laughs> where no one knows who anyone is. Um, so who knows what's, what's nature and what's nurture. But, yeah, in the boarding house, I remember being like, well, I'm going to perform I'm going to perform with all these girls and kind of lean into the fact that I shouldn't be here and I'm very noticeable because I'm massive and I'm the boy that lives in a girl's boarding house. So I'm going to, you know, do a thing and show off. And uh, and then, so I, it wasn't all kind of, you know, necessarily negative, but when when you're developing your, your personality and, those, and you're like, oh, I'm someone who's funny, I'm someone who shows off, when you then add that to the... <laughs> quite toxic cocktail of um i'm i am unimpeachable yeah <laughs> you show can, title like it, it's, not, it's not just that like so in, in my secondary school there was a public speaking competition where you know big history of debating and everything and and i i uh i would do like the main speech for our team and i'd just try and make it funny mm-hmm. and in the and I won it every year I was there, apart from the first year, and I was 12 or 13, and I got to the final and did my speech, and then the headmaster stood up in front of the whole year, basically sort of publicly shamed me for being inappropriate. And it was this real, you know, because he was like, this is a sort of a quite a stuffy institution, less so, but, you know, 
he was kind of a bit of a Christian moralist. And so, you know, obviously I have a 12 year old boy doing what 12 year old boys think is funny. And it probably, I can't remember what it was about, but it was, yeah, he was probably had every right to do that, but it was the kind of, it was an early sort of analog version of an online lynch mob, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, and my house master at the time was a much younger teacher, uh, ended up, he, he took me to the headmaster's study like two days later and which was terrifying. And the headmaster fucking apologised to me for doing that. For like, I shouldn't have. And so suddenly, and this is in the first year, I'm walking around, I'm just like, this place is a crock of shit, I can do anything. <laughs> you know, this huge kind of rowing Christian headmaster has apologised yeah. to me for being too over-authoritative. Yeah. Well, rubbing my hands with glee. <laughs> Did it affect how you dealt with your friends? Did you have lots of friends? Hmm. And did um, you, did you, so. like, cause you, I, I, there was a, there was a kid that I went to school with who had like a kind of evil version of the experience you're talking about. Yeah. There was one particular person who just famously had no respect for authority, would be given a detention slip and like look the teacher in the eye and tear it up and stuff it in their mouth. Oh, I wasn't that, that cool. <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, you know, I mean, he, you know, I don't know that he was a good guy so much as kind of in it for himself and waging war with this authority. But like, yeah, it wasn't a punk thing it was more that like when you're like oh all i want to do in in class is is mess around and mm-hmm. make people laugh because you get addicted to that you know that physiology of getting the laugh when you know you're also in a quite a sort of weird position of not only does your dad work there and so you could probably can get away with a bit more um but the headmaster's apologized to you for <laughs> Because you, you ask more for just writing like, so that you can show yeah, it, and keep it in your pocket. Yeah, it was more just like it gives you license to be a class clown, and I was also that annoying person who did like well enough. I was yeah. you know, distracting others, and the work was fine. I was that yeah. you know what must be an absolute nightmare for teachers. So, were you the funniest kid in your class? Do you think? Yes, that me and actually at school, and we did sketch shows at school and raised money for charity. Um, and we like sold out the main auditorium, and it was weird. One of the other guys in it was Paddy Jervis, who is the guitarist in Johnny no the Baptist. Because Johnny and Paddy both went to the same school. Okay, okay. And jo- my dad taught Johnny drama. That's funny. So the first production I remember, I used to go watch Dad's productions, and it was Jesus Christ Superstar, and Johnny was Judas, and he was wearing leather trousers and had a whip. <laughs> Sounds fair. It was an interpretation. <laughs> no. Yeah, so... Okay, okay. Go. So to apply that to your comedy, yeah. did, was that... Is that something that has arisen in your comedy, that lack of respect for authority and that kind of rubbing your hands with glee at the idea of being unimpeachable? Because, again, the territory you occupy, because you don't come down on one side of an opinion, because you're exposing hypocrisy and everybody is a hypocrite, you can't ever be proved wrong. Yeah, but I'm also, you know, I'm a comedian, and that, that that's fine. I'm not trying to be proved right. I, I no, do. but I mean, m- but most comedians will pick a side. Do you think? Maybe, but I, I'm not. Maybe nowadays, but I'm not sure they used to or necessarily should. Hmm. Um, I think maybe it's part of the. Um, well, I don't want to be prescriptive. Obviously, part of part of comedy's joy is its rich tapestry of, of difference. I did mean that more than I sounded like, <laughs> like I did. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, th- I, we do sort of live in a in a in an opinion economy at the moment, where there is money to be made 
if you are towing one of the lines you know whatever happens whatever kind of cultural war thing happens whether it's players taking a knee mm. if you're someone who can be wheeled out on the news discussion shows and question time and you can take either the for or the against stance mm. you know there's podcasts there's there's book deals there's ad revenue i mean social media kind of just accelerates that and so I think I think for a lot of comics that that makes sense when they're spending a lot of time on social media and and um, it's an easy way to gain a following. Um, so I suppose from that perspective, I just basically am not gaining a following. I'm just alienating everyone until there's no one left. And you're but, not like people aren't ringing you up for your opinion on stuff because no one ever thinks. I was like, I don't. Whatever it is, I don't want to fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, people aren't like. I imagine the conversation in a broadcast kind of in a broadcasting office goes, "Who can we get to argue this side? Who can we get yeah. to argue that side?" And Completely. you occupy a position like no one is thinking. Who can give us uh, an, a sarcastic view of both sides? Yeah, because that's not what those shows want, and. I also think that's, well, for me, that's what I, I like going to see a comedian where I don't know what they're going to say. Yeah. And I, there are a lot of comedians where I think I know what they're going to say. And obviously they say it brilliantly and still make you laugh, but I'm like, oh, you know, I want to, you know, I want to just go into like this soup of the head and see what, what comes out. And I, I want to leave thinking, well, I don't know about that, but that was, I never thought about that before, and, you know. It's interesting. The people that you most remind me of are like Bill Burr and Louis C.K. in okay. terms of style. In terms of style. Yeah, comedically, not as yeah. a person. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's just make that very clear. <laughs> but in terms of that, like looking at ambiguity and going, there's a, there's some sort of problem here. Like every, no one is saying this. Do you know what I mean? Like we're all looking at, you know, your bit about trans athletes. Yeah. So... To, to kind of the, the territory that you explore with that stuff is like, I absolutely think that trans women should be able to compete with cis women in sport, but I don't want them, I don't want them to win. win. Yeah. Right. Okay. Which is basically a way of trying to navigate these two. I, can I, can I make these two incredibly divergent poles laugh at the same joke? Yeah. Because if you can't, you are, you're losing half the audience. And in many cases, it means I've lost all of them in one go. Well, this but, is, that's kind but, of where well, I'm you know, I, the, I think the bits I'm proudest of are the bits about, it's hard, it doesn't, it seems really weak now, but Brexit was a quite febrile atmosphere. I mean, you know, yeah. Nish would go on and, and, and talk about Brexit. He got like, someone unplugged his mic at the 99 Club and, you know, he had people shouting racial abuse at him and stuff you know it was a quite a febrile atmosphere for a few years so being able to do a bit that both people could laugh at yeah no matter what how they felt about it is really satisfying because yeah. it felt like something you had to have a, an opinion on in order to make it funny and it's the same with issues like the the trans rights you know i i i mean it's all i almost took it as more of a challenge than like i was like i'm sure because people were no one was kind of talking about it, but but in the kind of media landscape, it was so present, hmm. which is kind of overblown because it's such a small minority of people. But I was like, there must be a way. Do you mean to... it's a small minority of people who are transgender? Okay. And but the media landscape is so loud about that. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, there must be a way to people feel so kind of cautious around that topic. It's so kind of highly strung. There must be a way of making people laugh whilst. You know, pissing off people you want to piss off, and 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 but also 
um, bringing everyone together in a weird way, which actually happened with that Apollo set. It was, it was, man, the analytics on my feedback from that were astonishing. Like, because there's a certain amount of people on online who are kind of performatively outraged, and that's you know that's fine. They 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 get annoyed, and then I got um. I got letters or emails, I should say, from a transgender charity that said this is the first time, first transgender themed comedy that we've seen and not complained about. Mm-hmm. You've clearly like, you know, you've, you've clearly like researched it, which I had a lot. That's something that maybe doesn't seem like I have on stage. But but as in... I'll come back to that yeah. in a second. Um, uh, and I got a really nice, there's one in particular, a message when it got repeated in Australia from a trans woman who was like, thanks so much for laughing at our situation and not our identity. And yeah. I was like, great, I'm really glad you think that because that's what I thought I was doing. But obviously it's, you sort of don't know until someone says that. Yeah. Similarly, I also got an email from a, I don't know what you'd call it, a, um, I guess a gender critical organisation that said, that you're brilliant, you're saying all... Oh, you're really sticking it to them? And I was like, well, I mean, maybe you guys could meet up and discuss how you like my set and maybe you can put your issues aside, (laughs) bringing people together through divisive comedy. But um, I think what that shows is, and I pissed people off on... I had comments on Twitter, which you should never take as a straw poll, but I had comments saying boring and woke and transphobic and whatever. Yeah. And it was such a straw poll for... Or such a... It was such an example of when you when you're not picking a side, people will project their opinions onto you, and you can't really help that because mm. they a lot of you know especially in that kind of topics like that, people have an agenda, and you're never going to bat through that if you take an opposing side. When you said earlier on, you want. You want to piss off the right people, or maybe it pissed off some of the right people. Yeah. Who are the right people? The people who are, who are professionally pissed off at everything. Okay. Okay. So the, the right people aren't to do... It's not to do with anyone's opinion. It's to do with their expression of their opinion. Yeah. It's the people that you... Even if I'd... The people that that view comedy as having some kind of... Um, duty to social responsibility and therefore if you talk about anything outside your experience you are you know implicitly i don't know you know those those people the people that are just outraged because that seems to be how they get their kicks that's sorry i thought I, that was no I, swear, like, I mean i i sort of think you might as well lean into pissing them off because you're not you're not going to not piss them off yeah do you think that there is by by do you think there is an element or is there a danger of being a bit like that kind of Trumpian, oh, there's good and bad people on both sides? Like, is it a privilege to not take a position? Yeah, of course Because it is. you don't personally have any skin in the game. Yeah, of course it is. Um, but I do try and get around that by, you know, doing a lot of reading. Like, I remember when I knew I was trying to talk about trans rights, I read a, a series of books by an author called Juno Dawson, who's written quite a lot about what her experience was like. But I also, you know, I thing is, I also read Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I read stuff like I read Jordan Peterson's book and I watched YouTube videos of him because the thing is, I, I'm quite kind of boring or annoying, I guess, in that I am one of those people that the more I read, the less I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm only ever one well-written thing away from believing anything, really. 
as I think most people are, I mean, your beliefs, what, what a belief is just an amalgam of every, every conversation and opinion and film and book you've read in the last however long, isn't it? So, um, and when it's that, when there's that much weight of, of one opinion, you think, well, I might as well interrogate it and see what it makes me feel. And so, yeah, I do a lot of reading and then I was like, how can I, I don't want to come across as mean spirited, partly because I don't think, because I don't want to, but also an audience won't laugh at something that they think is mean spirited, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I was like, how can I, there is funny stuff here. It's a funny situation to be in academically, obviously, from my position. But how can I do it in a way that, like that comment said, you're making fun of the situation and not who they are? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's particularly pertinent with the, the, or, you know, the trans material I did, which I haven't really, oh, I've got a little bit more on it. But again, it's that that I've got some stuff about the Gender Recognition Act and the two sides on that, which is working really nicely at the moment. But yeah, I think the whole the whole you know you whole you hear this hysteria from certain comics who aren't good enough to write good jokes who are like, oh, you can't fucking say anything these days. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you can. You just got to do your reading. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it's like freedom of speech doesn't excuse you from from doing the fucking homework. Do you know what? I don't know. Mate, it just, it's so stupid, that whole argument. It's not true in, in a comic sense, anyway. People yeah. will laugh if it's funny. If they don't, I mean, you are a really good... Your act is a yeah, really it's, good it's, proof it's a definitive of that. proof of it. I would have been gone years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is Finn. We've got 40 minutes of extra content available to you if you're in the Insiders Club. Uh, we are going to discover... Oh, I mean, I kept this I kept this paywall for a reason. Uh, the secret underground route for UK comedians hoping to break America or international comedians hoping to break America. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, very fascinating. Uh, we'll also talk about how to bring a knife to a roast battle. Uh, we'll talk about Finn's new focus on writing prose um, and he will continue to chip away uh, at the omerta code of silence of the Bear Pit Podcast podcast. All of that available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all of the extra uh, extra content from all of the episodes that have it, as well as the recent insider-only Q&As with Nish Kumar, James Acaster, Fern Brady and Alfie Brown, and the uh, brilliant Self-Help for Comedians special that we did last month with Amanda Donnett. All of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And you can follow Finn on a, a variety of things, although he pointed out that um, Twitter is just for tour announcements. He doesn't put hot content on it. But speaking of hot content, you can see his new show. It's called So My Wife. We didn't even talk about it in this episode because there was so much other stuff to talk about. But it starts on the 17th of September in Leicester and goes through until November. Uh, not quite sure of the London dates yet, but all over the UK. All dates are at fintaylor.com slash live. Uh, and his Twitter, as I uh, mentioned there, is at fintaylorcomedy. But, uh, oh yes, he, sorry, he said, I only post links to gigs rather than dank memes. So maybe it is hot content of a sort. But go and see him on tour. We didn't even get into the show, um, into the new show, because uh, we've got all of this other stuff to talk about. But speaking of seeing things live, do check out monkeybarrelcomedy.com, which I've now checked, and that is actually the website, monkeybarrelcomedy.com, to find out everything that is happening in uh, Edinburgh. Uh, well, not everything, but everything that's happening there in Edinburgh, which is a sort of wonderful 
uh, cult favourite venue with a fabulous coterie of comedians of which I'm proud to be a part. So monkeybarrelcomedy.com. My own dates are 3.15 daily and Monkey Barrel 3 between the 10th and at least 15th of August. And what I'm going to be doing in there is, I think it's just called Cut and Shut, but what it is is I'm welding together the best bits of both End Of, which is my most recent tour show, and Primer, which is the work uh, work experience show. (laughs) I did a work experience show in um, a work in progress show in 2019. And I'm going to be taping a special uh, later this year. Taping a special, how American I. I'm doing that in November, so I'm using that week at the Monkey Barrel to pick the best bits, restructure them, reorder them, sharpen them up, and probably throw in some new bits as well. And hey, if I get three dates in and I'm like, this is great, it's ready, then I'll just start doing loads of new material. So come and see that multiple times and everything else that's on at that fabulous hub of venues. Now, let's get back to Finn. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do you hold a position on any of these issues? Or do they, are they, do you hold a position that you're not expressing? Or another way of saying that maybe is, do the issues mean anything to you personally beyond an opportunity to make jokes about them? There is a sense, I do have a sense of, um, I need a sense of moral justice, yeah. But also, I don't believe in anything beyond getting a laugh. So to me, there is no opinion that I hold that could not be twisted if it gets a big laugh. Because I don't see my, my job. I'm not, you know, if I wanted to be an activist, I would have done that. And I know there are people that fuse comedy and activism really well. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's their thing. And, I, and sometimes it is great. But I, for me, I, I'm just chasing the biggest laughs I can. And... I'm easy. I find it easy to compartmentalise that side of my life from myself as a human being that that votes and that talks at, down the pub with people. And but a lot of the things I'm I'm just confused about because, like I say, you read a lot about it and you go, I'm no clearer as to what what is the right thing and um, what we think right is right now. And the, with the perspective of another hundred years, would probably look stupid. 
So do you do you sort of subscribe to the idea that most people don't give a damn about any of this? There's just extremists on either side. And when they behave in an extreme way, the whole of the other side, the extremists and the the mm. uh, the non-extremists go, see, that's what they're like. In regards to like the kind of ongoing cultural yeah. war, you mean? Um, no, I think people, well, I don't know. It's hard to, I, I don't know if people really, maybe they do care. I don't know. I think they have strong opinions on it. But I do think there are people who, on both sides of that, of the current, whatever it is, media landscape. <laughs> there's, there's no real words for it, is it? No. The way I always try to describe it is like the sorts of people that use the term snowflakes and the sorts of people they're talking about. The thing is, is that both those, you know, we live, we live in this opinion economy where there are these two sorts of narratives and they're each, each other's horcrux. You know, they, can't, they need the other one to survive. Because otherwise they don't have a thing to rail against. Which is why every issue gets chewed over, goes through this fucking sausage machine of, oh, they hate their country, you're racist, blah, 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 blah. And I think a lot of the issues are just, are pretty meaningless. And then there are some that people do complain, you know, like the Piers Morgan walking off mm-hmm. after the Megan thing. That got so many complaints. Because it's like, come on, mate, you know. Uh, it's not really it's not really on for people who are watching you to just dismiss someone's suicidal thoughts that brazen at eight in the morning yeah um i think people probably do care about that whilst also finding megan annoying yeah like i think most i think most people are are confused and 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 hold conflicting opinions and it is only this sort of um this landscape we have at the moment which demands simplicity and purity of ideological narrative in order for people to, well, like any war, the cultural war has money to be made in it. And, and, and the only people that seem to make these arguments are people that have a stake in it. So in terms of your stake in it, when you talked about that trans woman sending you an email saying, thank you for talking about our situation yeah. and not our selves. Yeah. That made you feel good. That as had a, a positive human. effect yeah. as a human because yeah. you made someone feel good as a human and you went, that's satisfying. Yeah, so, or, or I got away with it. <laughs> I don't, did did I don't those feelings the same for you? Like, this, not that this person is, is happy and feels represented and that's positive. Does that carry the same weight no, or, or even less, more, less weight as it's pat on the back for a clever Finn who managed to get away with a big laugh? There's a bit of both. But the, <laughs> it's more like, oh, I'm glad that I... Because I sort of... You, you, know, you know what you, in your heart, what you think is decent... And, but you are able to kind of lose that when you're, well, I am, when you enter the sort of amoral universe of, of comedy. Um, and so it's more that I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm, I'm not pleased she feels represented. I'm pleased she's not, she doesn't feel worse. And that I was able to make fun of that situation without, because I don't want to join the side that, or people who do, who do want that. I know there are people who do want her to not feel herself. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I don't want to join that side, just as I don't want to join the side that sort of humorously, who humorously defends them, defends that idea against all other yeah. opinion. So it is a it's a it's a hell of a tightrope. Yeah, one of the things that I can't... One of the things I was thinking recently that I... Because I read, like, I read arguments, and like I think, like you're saying, I kind of will see 
you know, whoever they are, arguing with each other on Facebook or on uh, Twitter, and I'll follow it and I'll go, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, no, that's kind of a good point. I don't yeah. know if I trust that source. No, but that's absolutely a great rejoinder. And I'll kind of... Like, I know that I am... I'm liberal and I'm left-leaning and I'm trans-inclusive. Yeah. But... I do appreciate that the lack of nuance m- m- tries to make extremists of everyone. Mm. And so one of the things I've noticed is that when people, this isn't even a thing I've noticed, but when people get accuse each other of virtue signaling, yeah. you go, well, of course, I, if there's a kind of me too in comedy yeah. and you as a man say, this is really fucking horrible that women have yeah. to go through this. I hadn't realized and this is horrible. I might do that because I want to publicly be an ally. And someone could look at that and go, that is virtue signaling. And you go, well, it may be, but it's kind of allyship at the same time. Because if I agree with someone and don't back them for the sake of not being seen to virtue signal, yeah. then I'm being a shit ally. So so yeah. one of the, I don't even know what the question is, but for me, that's like, I'm like, oh, this can never be resolved because one person's virtue signaling is another person publicly being an ally. Yeah. I, I remember when I, in 2017 I did the show that was more about kind of um, sort of more about tribalism really I was trying to be aggressively centrist in the way you know angrily sort of disgustingly moderate that was funny to me <laughs> as, a, uh, as a starting point that was sort of what the show was kind of about okay. it's like can you can you be like offensively middle ground <laughs> um, and um, I wanted to criticise the kind of people or rather the feeling you get when you feel people are kind of disingenuously, um, well, virtue signaling. This is my point. I, I was very careful not to use the phrase virtue signaling because mm. I don't want to be labelled as someone who calls all people who are bleating on about social justice virtue signalers because I don't think that. Mm-hmm. But I also think there are people who do do that and it's yeah. really annoying. And um, so I was, I was very careful, you know, in, in that regard, in that show, it's like, okay, there are buzzwords that will set people off and will get reviewers writing certain things about me. You avoid them at all costs, but you just, you exchange them with the synonyms, you talk about the feelings, you talk about things that we all have. But if you put this label on them, then people go, oh, I'm not like that. I do, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll retract. Yeah. So okay. it's an awareness of people as well and how they, how they react and their own tensions. The bit where you were in, um, you deliberately sit down on a stool yeah. <laughs> in order to say yeah. less palatable things. Yeah. Where did the idea for that come from? Um, it was, huh, well, the first, so in that show, I, I start by saying like, there's nothing, you're meant to start with your most accessible material and then you get darker and I've got nothing that will not offend someone. So what I'm going to do to start is I'm just going to sit down so it seems less confrontational. And then as I sit down, I go, I think the reason why so many feminists hate trans women. And I just get this huge like laugh at the start because I really wanted to just start. Yeah. And such in doing hours in Edinburgh, that's something you really have to, it's counterintuitive to just start because you feel like it's a gig. I need to talk about the fringe and the flowers mm-hmm. and oh, it's raining and what other shows have you seen? And it, people don't want that. They've seen fucking eight shows. They want you to just start. And it's so, especially with stuff that's you know big and tense, so it's just how can I let them know that I know this is a hell of a gambit yeah, and make you feel comfortable enough to trust me that I can just start. I think I, I can't remember. I just did it at a gig where, yeah, I was doing, I was, I was opening. That's the thing. I've forgotten how to open in with the pandemic. Yeah. But I was opening and I was like, fuck, I want, I need to try this stuff out. 
I'm gonna have to do it off the top. I'm gonna have to, maybe I'll sit down. And then, so that was funny. And then I kind of used it as a, in previews, I used it as a like, you know, that Jim Owen bit where he's trying to find the funniest bit of the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I sort of used it as like a, oh, if they don't, if they don't, they don't go for it any night, I can go and sit on the stool and then I'll get them yeah. back. And then it became, um, well, it's, it's not so much theatrics as it was. I was trying to fix a bit that wouldn't work. And the theatrics covered the fact that I was going into an hour with 10 minutes that was quite ropey. And it was on topic, but it wasn't really firing because it was, I think it was because it was just too beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, what if I get a smaller stool out of, out of like the wings as like a magician's <laughs> trick? And then somehow there's an even impossibly smaller stool <laughs> when I get to the, the really, the bit that it's just no one will laugh at because it's like, mate, that's not a thing. Um, so it was more covering, you know, if I had an, an hour that worked, then I wouldn't have done that theatrics. And um, it's more covering for, for a joke that you haven't had time to to get up, really. It's like the, um, in 2017, I had this, um, I had these t-shirts. Did you see that show? Was that the MAGA hat year? No, so that was it. So that was the year before. Okay. Before Trump won. Yeah. And then Trump won, and I'd sold all these make Ed and regret again hats. And it, but the it changed. It wasn't fun anymore because now they would just look like they genuinely supported. The first time I saw one of them, I wet myself laughing. I think that might have been the first moment when you had when I became aware that you were having or about to have a big career. Well, that was, yeah, that like was the year. Foot, that yeah. was your foot down year. I was pretty shit before that year, really. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and then people bought them. They thought it was funny because they thought he wasn't going to win. And I didn't think he was going to win. And then obviously he wins. And you're like, ah, I've made money and people can't even wear the merch. So I started the show by going, I made these cats last year, but he wasn't supposed to win. And now it's changed. Um, and then I also I had a joke that wasn't really funny, but I was trying to make fun of the Corbyn T-shirts, the Corbyn Nike tick. Oh, yeah. And I basically, I... I it was a shit joke, but I kept it because I used it as a call forward to a bigger punchline. So it was like, oh, I hate that. It doesn't make any sense because Nike's slogan is just do it and Corbyn doesn't do fucking anything. A very wry aside. <laughs> the only reason I kept it is because later, about 45 minutes in, when I'm <laughs> defending the Iraq war, because why wouldn't you in a room in Edinburgh? Yeah. We all know what they think. Fuck it, let's go upstream and see if yeah, we can... Yeah, 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 okay. I go, bullshit, I even got t-shirts made and I popped my shirt and there was a Blair Nike tick underneath it. Yeah. And that got a huge laugh, but it was... It meant I had to keep a shit joke in earlier. Yeah. Uh, and then I got these t-shirts made at the end, which were... Um, they said, what did they say? They said, oh, I got someone up on stage and I basically dressed them up in all my merch. And they said, the T-shirts were like, I think I was talking about white guilt and how it's justified, but it doesn't actually help anything. And so I had something like, white men ended slavery on the T-shirt. And, and that's what the, the stooge was wearing as he turned around while he was wearing a mega hat. And then I'd, I also had a joke about uh, how swastikas are originally a Hindu symbol. But I was like, well, they're not. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You can't just draw on your forehead and walk around Bradford. That's not <laughs> going to work. And so I then got a swastika and put it on him. And I was like, look, it's just a liberal guy wearing some merch or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's at some point, basically all the theatrics in those Edinburgh shows are there to cover stuff that won't work or 
stuff that doesn't work is there to make them work. Yes. If I could, I'm sort of in search of the perfect hour. If I could just get that perfect hour, I'm not sure I'd have any theatrics in it. Yeah. I might do. In Edinburgh, they kind of love it. Yeah. On tour, they think it's weird. I was just going to say the difference between an Edinburgh audience and a tour audience or a yeah. comedy club audience in the rest of the country, as you say, you know what an Edinburgh audience is going to think, so you can set yourself in opposition to that. Have you ever had the wrong kind of a reaction from a crowd where you mention something and someone either takes it at face value or like kind of like cheers a bit that you're like, whoa, oh, the, old, um, the old Al Murray. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the old yeah. Al Murray bind. Uh, not really, but uh, I, I did what, that same show, 2017, the last show of the run. I was like, I think I'd got my tech a bottle of whiskey or something. And I was, I was like, I was going to have like, a, I really got on my tech that year, a guy called Rudy. And I was like, he was really helpful in the early days of the run. And uh, I was wanting to have just a, like a little moment or something. Although I say I got my tobacco tin. Anyway, this guy was hanging around after the show and I was like, oh, thanks for coming. But I'm trying to, you know, he was like, mate, I've seen your show four times. I love it. And I was like, oh, great. Thanks so much. That's, that's, that's amazing. And he's like, yeah, I was just wondering how, I, you know, you seem like the kind of guy that would talk about all this stuff about the Clinton family harvesting child organs. And I was like, oh, fuck <laughs> hell. Not you. Not you're the guy that's seen me four times. But, yeah, you know, you make your bed. Yeah. But... Like I say, you can't, you know, you, you can't really control what people are going to take from it because I, I absolutely did not talk about the Clintons harvesting children's organs. This is clearly something that he's been reading on forums or online and he's projecting it onto someone who is slightly criticising the left. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Do like, you... It's funny because you're... I've seen a lot of comments on your YouTube videos which are really negative. Which, yes. given how funny the material is, seems like they've sorted it out in, in order to slam you. Is it from the last um, six months? Uh, it, I, I, I was unnoticed. I don't know. I was under. Well, I, I told a joke on. Have I got news for you? Of course, of course. And, um, and then people discovered you and wanted to go and disagree with you. Yeah, or or just call me whatever they wanted to. They were, they were, yeah. They, yeah. Because so I, when that, that... there's been a, there has been a campaign. I got locked out my website. Um, Did you? Yeah, and. By you know, who, like deliberately by the owner of the website? No, by people, um, I don't know, hackers, like, okay. whatever. And, I mean, it's not funny. I mean, this is awful. The only time I've apologised for anything is after that sh- that clip got aired because my agent got rape threats. Two of my agents got rape threats. Jesus Christ. And I was like, okay, you know, slag me off on Twitter, whatever. You're allowed not to like a joke, but because like, my agent's email is on my website. Yeah. Just like, what, you know, what planet are people on? Yeah. And I was actually really annoyed with, um, like, there was, a, there was a journalist who took a clip of it out of context of being on the Vagrant News for You and said, this guy went to private school, so this, this joke he said he means. And she's yeah. a journalist, so people, what she says, people regard as, regard as reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so that just that gave license to just this, this whole, I don't know how many people it was, but it was, uh, you know, and yeah, just so needlessly unpleasant. It's yeah. like, oh, look, you, you you make your bed. If people want to snag you off in the comments, fine. But fucking, you know, leave my agents out of it. Stuff like that. It's, I have to say, when anyway, that happened, I, I saw, saw, probably for the first time, I had like, you know, I remember like the equivalent of this would be the catcalling video that kind of was part of when Me Too started yeah. happening, where I kind of really went, oh, Christ, I didn't think about it from the perspective of, of the woman. Of the woman. Yeah. I've never catcalled it, catcalled yeah. anyone. Doesn't mean people don't catcall Doesn't mean it. people yeah. don't, you know, yeah. you, you might have seen it happen once, but you don't see it from their perspective. I had a similar thing, I have to say, with recognising that 
people who whose politics I almost certainly agree with were being absolute pricks to you in their droves. And I went, oh, God, I think this is an inverted commas woke mob. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really were like, oh, wow, you've said a thing. And it's probably in conjunction with that article whereby people are accusing you of hypocrisy. And do you know what I mean? Like, they, people yeah. got really stuck in in a way that I went, whoa, hang on. Like, I, I'm sure, like, I can tell from your <laughs> from your profile pictures and your names that, like, it's they're the opposite of flag Twitter or whatever it is. Do you know well, what I mean? it's the other side of it. It's, it's the, the other side it's of the it. Red, the Red Rose lot. You know, that's the thing. What is that? What is the Red Rose? Well, the right Labour Red Rose. Yeah, right. Especially okay. if you're if the Corbyn subset of. And like, you know, whatever. I mean, what was fascinating was I, my agent actually said like, oh, I'm surprised I kept that joke in um, because she wasn't there because it was lockdown. So there was, it was a virtual audience. And it was the first time I've done that show in the studio. I've done Can you tell us what the joke was, or is it sensible to not repeat it? Or well, it was, it was a joke about scale. Because <laughs> it was a joke about. I how, remember hearing it and going, "What's this a joke?" It was a joke about how there's, you know, Corbyn's in the news, and when it got to that round, Corbyn came up, and there was just silence in the studio. And I'm like, first time on the panel, I really want to. I'm like, well, the producers are like, uh, the host Victoria Coral Mitchell's like waiting for people to chip in. Joan Bakewell says something sincere, mm-hmm. and then. Everyone's looking at like the comics to say no one said anything, and I was like, "Well, I'll, I'll do this bit I sort of thought of." Where I was like, "It's it's not that many people, but they have such a force over your stranglehold over the Labour Party." You know, it's what is it? Hundred thousand people. All you'd have to do is just bomb Glastonbury, and it's not a problem anymore. A joke about scale. By the way, I've been to Glastonbury three times. Some of the best nights of my life. Yeah, I've nothing. I do not want to bomb. <laughs> I don't think a comedian needs to say that, but clearly they do. Um, and uh, and then yeah, I was ta- I mean, talking to the people afterwards on the show, and they were like, "I was gonna say some, I was gonna say a joke about how I was too frightened to say something, and I got too frightened to even say I was frightened." And I was like, "Oh, I hope they don't keep that in." Yeah. And uh, and then I talked to, I was I'm working on something with a producer who from that, and he, he called me like a couple months ago. I was like, "Yeah, that was cut," and I told him to put it back in. So sorry for all that, mate. And I was like. Oh, yeah. oh my god! Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, it died down. It, I okay. think it always does. You said before that Edinburgh show in 2017, I was shit before that. 16. 16. <laughs> Sorry, mate. 16. Five stars from the Scotsman. <laughs> you said I was shit before that, and that's when I got good. So, what changed for you and your approach, your process, yeah. all of those things? What was it that changed? Well, when- part of it was I'd been doing comedy since I was 18. And I, you know, I wasn't. I, you, what, you, what the male brain doesn't finish developing till you're what, what, twenty seven or something? So part of it was just being young, not really knowing who I was. Part of it was like I had a real strong sense I wanted to be a comedian, but I didn't really. I knew I didn't, what kind of comedians I didn't want to be, but I didn't really know what I did want to be. And uh, I kind of was getting this sense of like, you know, whimsy was very fashionable at the time I was starting, and I was like, everyone's doing that. I want to. And then, and then I, so I started doing that in 2014, 15. It was kind of like a sort of, it's funny to look back on those shows now and the attitude is there, but it's not been politicised or it's not really about society at all. It's just about kind of observation. It's like angry observational comedy. You're a shower, you're a shower scrubber. Bit. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that like, I was also, for, for the first seven, six years, I was a compare and yeah. a TV warm up. Yeah. Um, oh god you didn't I know, know didn't you which yeah, I'm thinking yeah, yeah. now but like 
I, that's how I was. I was able, basically just Mark Olver, as he did with so many people, just mm-hmm. sort of saw someone who who wanted to be in comedy and had a determination and and just took me under his wing. And then I got a TV warm up quite early, which basically meant I could be a comedian professionally whilst I didn't really have an act or a material or, or a voice to speak of. And um, so I was just kind of, maybe it was that luxury that meant I was just meandering around different kind of styles and voices for a while. And then I remember I, I started getting interested again in politics. I'd gone off it. I was a I was somebody who voted for Nick Clegg in 2010, thinking this is going to change the world. And it didn't. And then I sort of went off it. And then I sort of started getting back into it around 2015. And I also had done this bit in the Edinburgh show that year about how I, I hated a flatmate because she was like too white. And the show was a bit of a disaster, but that was the only bit that worked every time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wouldn't it be funny and stupid to do a show <laughs> as a white comedian where you're talking about your race, the way that ethnic minorities are sort of are forced to talk about their race by you know audiences and culture. And so it started off as like, this sounds like a stupid idea. I wonder if I can make it work. My agent heard about it at the time. Went, well, I'm not representing you anymore. Uh, but you well, yeah, dropped, yeah, dropped yeah, as a result of that. Show. Very satisfying fringe. Before this. <laughs> Very satisfying. Bef- like how far into the process of like when the show existed, they dropped you? Or when you the said, ti- I've got the, an idea. The, no, the title and the time slot. and The, the title was the blurb, Whitey McWhiteface. Whitey McWhiteface. And the blurb. And the time slot. And so it was like April, whenever you have to book in your fringe show. I was like, I'm doing this. And they went, I don't think that's a good idea. And I went, I'm doing it anyway. Because I was sort of at a loss. I was just like, well, let's fucking roll the dice and see if this works. I'm, I kind of, I resented the fact that Edinburgh makes, you know, the, the path. There is no real path anymore. But at that time, it felt like the path was you have to do a good Edinburgh show. And, um, and then that's how you get onto the kind of mainstream you know that's how you become a club comic weirdly it's this Mm. weird like tangential path and I resented the fact that I couldn't just do an hour of stand-up partly because if I was good enough I probably could but I wasn't good enough and also I was aware that you know you had to have a sort of theme and you had to wet these bourgeois pricks whistles with some sort of you know either (laughs) personal narrative of trauma or as I decided to do a kind of essayistic approach about something quite spicy and um and so I just went, oh fuck it, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do one of these shows, but I'm really not happy about it, and I'm gonna be really angry, and I'm gonna make sure they don't they know that I'm not just pandering to them. And then um and it also kind of chimed with uh, just me starting to read the New Statesman and starting to and there was an election coming up and being much more kind of just aware of, of the world. And I think it was also the time that Black Lives Matter it was when they started having body cam footage of, of, of African Americans being shot, and so there was kind of a that was a similar kind of consciousness shift because you start seeing that on your facebook feed and you go god this is happening all the time Mm. and so i think there was there was actually the show actually became more kind of serious as the year progressed and then brexit happened right before edinburgh then it became suddenly like oh actually this is i've got all this material and i managed to shoehorn it into this kind of narrative but now i can actually the narrative is actually interesting and i can you know i can build to a sort of conclusion that people might take seriously and stuff so um what started out as quite a silly idea became quite a you know sort of well, a very well for me, a very successful show, and then I think, like any of us, you find something that works, and then you um, you just do that again and again. 
And then I think maybe what happened was that, like, the, the, I definitely, when you read great reviews of you that call you provocative, you're like, oh, well, that's what I do. And you, that, it's funny, that sort of then starts to override or fuck with your instinct as to what you should do. You should go, well, no, I'm sort of seen as this guy. And there's definitely stuff, material that I've tried and haven't, I've never kept something that didn't work, but uh, I've definitely tried stuff because I think that's what I should be doing before I realise you shouldn't really, even if it's a good review, you know, it's, um, you should try and not let it affect what you do. Give me an example of something that you tried because you thought it was the sort of thing you should do. Um, I'm trying to think. That sounded quite abrupt. What I was going to do no, was give me an example know, because know, that's I'm what I'm to, after. I'm trying to think, but like, <laughs> it's all so long ago and the pandemic has made me, I'm trying to think of stuff that I, I can't, off the top of my head, I cannot think, but I just know the new material nights where I've gone up and gone right well I should have something on like you know uh, the amount of letters in the LGBT thing mm-hmm. and I actually did find quite a unique way of doing that mm-hmm. in a way that wasn't you know dickish or like homophobic I think um, but I remember at the start it was it was just like well I should I should be someone who's like well this is a lot of letters even though it's the fucking happiest thing in the world and um so probably that, probably just because you you have this sense of like, well, this is what I'm being sort of told I am. So that's what I need to do. And you're not actually listening to your comedic instinct as to what you should be doing. So, um, yeah, I think it's something that I, you know, I'm really proud of the last three shows. I'm, they, they've given me a career that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And, uh, and it just makes sense that I am that kind of comedian, given the kind of kid I was. However, I am sort of in the sort of newer show was... I had a year off in 2019, which from a financial point of view was a stupid decision, given what happened <laughs> with, with the old virus. A lovely big stack full oh, of nuts and berries over here. Stupid. I'll be fine. What's that? What's that? You're going to get married as well? <laughs> with 140 people, there's no limits. Really splash the cash. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, anyway, I was trying to get a bit of kind of bit of distance from like, you know, I, saw, I learned how to do an Edinburgh show that was buzzy and would sell out and get good reviews. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I repeated the trick three times. And then when I started going on, I did one sort of tour of that. It was, it went it, well, it was very up and down as, as touring is at, at my level. Um, but even the ones that sold out went really well. I was like, that's not quite, there's something in this, in this touring audience that isn't quite gelling with the Edinburgh sort of gear shift that takes place around the 45 minute mark, where I don't think I really do a 40 minute so guys, let's talk about the thing. But I definitely noticed myself, the, the gravity of whatever I'm talking about forcing me to at least be slightly less disingenuous and for the fuck of it. I think that's what an Edinburgh audience wants. They sort of want you to come to a conclusion of sorts. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, from my experience, the tour audience doesn't want that. And so it's interesting. I'm sort of trying to work out how to, you know, I feel like I really know what a club audience wants. I really know what an Edinburgh audience wants. And it's like, the, then the tour thing is like, oh shit, are they coming to see me do what I want? Because I just do what I know will work depending on who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's weird. It's funny. I mean, we're going on tour in the autumn, hopefully. Restrictions do lift. And it's, yeah, I'm trying to get this material together at the moment. And it's it's interesting trying to be aware of like, do they just want an hour of this really funny? Do they want a bit of a sort of essayistic kind of momentum? Or do they... 
is the fact I'm talking about stuff that's relevant, you know, or zeitgeist, is that enough? I don't, I don't know. I'm still trying to work that out. And when you say it's interesting for you to talk there about what they want, yeah. because does that matter to you what they want? Because I would have thought from what we, for everything we've talked about for the last hour, I would have thought what they want doesn't matter to you at all. No, well, what they want from a comedic perspective. Yeah. Yeah, of course it matters. It's a craft more than it is an art. You're, you're, you're trying to build, we're all trying to build material that works the same way every time, no matter who's in the room, who's been on before you, what's in the news. So it's, you know, it's more like a, a, a carpenter building a chair that is a chair, no matter who sits on it, than it is, um, you know, it's, it's also an art and it's also self-expression. But the thing with self-expression is the audience get in the way of that. Don't they? I mean, you hear this kind of quite buzzy phrase at the moment of speaking your truth. And the implication is that someone's stopping you from doing that. And that we take that to mean society, which is a kind of audience. That's sort of what who we're all performing to. And so in a stand-up context, you know, expressing yourself is kind of you 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 ignore the audience. Whereas we are we are uniquely tied to it in a way that's unlike any other form of performance. In that if people aren't laughing we're not doing stand-up and so you have to know what they want otherwise you can't you can't do it and that's why you know that's why sliding into hack bits is something we all do because you are you're you know especially when you're being paid your first priority is them and and the and the art is how you take what you find funny and bend it under their sort of hammer blows of audience exposure to being something that works every time, no matter who's in the room, no matter what fucking Twitter accounts they have. That's the that's it. So of course it matters what they want from a comedic perspective. If they wanted to come and watch a TED talk or an activist, then I'm not I don't care. I'm not giving them what they want. Fuck that. But I'm a comedian, so it's fine. That was such a great answer. Thank you. That's a great answer. I suppose I, I... My question came more from the idea that, like, that there's giving them what they want, and then there's, which is, like you say, can veer into hackery, but there's also kind of giving them what they don't know they want, which I think is what you do more. You like surprising them. Yeah, you it, like getting them to laugh in spite of themselves. And I'm just why, interested. That's, yeah, that's why they're paying. It's a roller coaster, it's a theme park ride. Yeah. They know they're going to be scared, but they know it's ultimately going to be fine. Absolutely. Apart from that time at Thought Park where that girl lost her leg. But, <laughs> 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 you know, that, it's, that's why I think that show is, stands out in Edinburgh. It's because it's like, whoa, okay, it's funny. Oh, oh it's funny. You know, it's, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. It's, it's, it's veering away at the last minute before you crash into a wall. Yeah. You know, it's an experience. It's entertainment. It's, um, and that's what they're paying for. They want to laugh. They want a physiological reaction. Absolutely. I don't disagree with any of that, yeah. but I'm just interested in the relationship between that and then you saying, oh, I don't think they want a, a kind of revelatory bit. And it's like, I'm just interested that it, and you answered the question really well. I guess I'm just interested in how reactive you are to them versus how much you impose your will upon them. Well, that's the, that's the, meet, the meeting point of those two things is where... Great comedy is made, Stu. <laughs> End of interview. <laughs> Ding. Um, we all have things in our head, and that's what we're trying to... Um, the craft is in trying to get it to work every time to the audience. And if we didn't care about the audience reaction, we would just do it in the face of indifference. 
Yeah. Which, let's be frank, some people do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think the best comics, you're always audience-led. And so I know I'm going to be bringing up stuff that they might think they don't want to hear, but my, I like to think, skill is to get them to laugh at it, even though they might be, they might think they're not the kind of person that would. Mm-hmm. That's what the... There's a bit when you were talking about the... Um, uh, I think it was in the Apollo set about um, uh, you're watching the Paralympics and thinking, are, are they? Are they? And there's a kind of a hand-wringing moment that you're like a performatively kind yeah. of like, can yeah. I say this? Are they... Dis- is that one disabled enough? Yeah. It's really, really funny because that that kind of... that Those beats that you put in there allow us to catch up with where you're going. Yeah. And it's not, you're beautifully timed and everything. I'm just wondering about those moments where in order to sell the idea, you have to briefly take the position that you don't know whether you're allowed to say the idea. Mm. Do you know those kind of moments? I I wonder, are there moments when you've kind of listened back to previews and thought, I've kind of been too hand-wringing there? Do you know what I mean? Because for a moment, you're sort of, you're letting us believe that you have as much of a problem with the ideas as we might. Yeah. Do you think you have as God, much of a problem? It's manipulative on my part, isn't it? <laughs> well, but we're—that's what we do. We manipulate emotion on a mass scale. Why are we trying to separate that from you know? Do you ever feel you've kind of calibrated that incorrectly and kind of thought to yourself afterwards, oh, "I should have looked more hand wringing, or I should have looked less hand wringing." Maybe yeah, I came the, across as so too like the hand wringing that you see in Edinburgh is the perfect amount of hand wringing for it to work in Edinburgh. Yeah, right. As it was on Apollo, I think. I mean, there was actually a bit that didn't make the... I don't think it made the edit where... Because I, I had to follow Tez, who smashed it. And, uh, and you know, and he ended it... Uh, he ended it being really sincere about what an amazing journey he'd been on. And, I, and fair play. What a bastard. He would do that, but I'm backstage. I'm behind the door being gassed with an inch of my life, being like, fucking hell, Tez, give me, give me a shot. I'm about to really wipe my ass with that kind of sincerity for about 20 minutes. To an audience that is not expecting it, let's be frank. And so there was a moment where I started and it was a bit like, you know, like the, the light, you can see the audience because the lights are on. No one told me that. And that's a bit of a shock. And then there was a moment where I was like, oh, this could go either way. And then I just sort of did this. Oh, I like pretended to be them going. Oh, and then they're like, oh, he knows that. Yeah. And then suddenly it's fine. He knows what? He knows that. He knows that he's he's like. Um, it's in inverted commas. Well, not it's in inverted commas, but he understands. He's self-aware. He knows that we are not comfortable enough yet to laugh at him. And yeah. when I say I know that, trust me, they go, okay, well, you, you're here for a reason, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and yeah, all those little sort of facial tics or hand-wringing moments, they're all depressingly thought, thought through and crafted and it's all... Why do you say, on the Scarlett Johansson joke, why do you say, you know that she used to be a... Baby, like you know, it's this really <laughs> weird way that you say it, and every time I heard it, I've gone, yeah, like I the it's, it's like you're. No. I wonder if you were telegraphing that you were going to say something else and then change your mind. I was just interested because, like no, you I said, those I, moments are crafted. It's uh, it's funny that I don't, it's I such don't a know. it's such a good punchline. I think it's the joke I'm proud of, not for the punchline, for the tag that got cut out. Of the can you just tell us the text of the joke? I'm not saying the you joke need to deliver is, it, um, but I, if it's, it's the about, joke you're most proud of, I really want to. It's a joke. It's a joke. Is uh, I think a lot of the the straight male insecurity with trans women is that they they can insecure about their own sexuality, 
And I was watching the news, and there was a trans model on the news, and she was gorgeous. And I was like, oh, she's really beautiful. My flatmate's like, you know, she's trans. I'm like, yeah, but she's really fit. It doesn't matter. He's like, yeah, but you know she used to have a dick. And I was like, yeah, but you know Scarlett Hansen, She's really attractive. Scarlett Hansen used to be a baby. Um, now, I would rather fuck a man than fuck a baby. I don't want to kink shame any paedophiles in the audience. <laughs> That's my favourite line. Yeah. Um, um, and so, but I, there was just a... For whatever reason, it's a really, it's one of those ones where it's really obvious once you hear it, but it, it wasn't obvious to the obvious to the audience. So I went quite slowly because I'm trying to increase that tension, and then I think because I'm going slowly, I have to try and say "baby" slowly, which is quite hard. Yeah, <laughs> okay, because it's, it. it's a baby, baby. Yeah. It's easier to go baby than baby. Yeah. yeah, sure. So I'm I think I've probably just developed a and you know the more you say something, the more you end up saying it weirdly because it doesn't make any sense to you anymore. It's just a so yeah, a baby. And then, I don't know, blah, blah, that's funny as well. So I don't know, I don't, who knows why I do it like that, but that's just felt right. Why is that, why is that tag the thing that you're most proud of? The, <laughs> because that's stupid. Being, pretending to be progressive on stage and saying, now listen, guys, I don't want to kink shame any paedophile. What you do in your home... <laughs> that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> what the idea, and the, the amazing thing is, I did that at Hot Water about um, in Liverpool a couple of years ago, and my agent got this email saying we really enjoyed Finset and we really enjoyed this joke he did about about um, Scarlett Johansson and, and transgender models. However, as a member of the kink community, I have a huge problem with that line. This is something we've worked really hard on to try and get those people out. And I was like, come on, fucking problem it. with the line. I don't want to kink shame any paedophiles. And this is the thing, right? It's like everyone has a thing that they can't laugh at because they take too seriously. Yeah. If you listen to every... If you went through a room of 300 people and took their things down, nothing would be funny. Yeah. You know, one in 15 people die trying to get something out of a vending machine every year. That's hilarious, unless it's your mum. Right? What's that? One in 15 people? Whatever it is. (laughs) One in 15 users of a vending machine die? No, one one, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's 15 people a year. (laughs) Really, really get a point counterpoint. That's a big... Fair play. That was obviously... (laughs) This sheds a very different light on your claims to have done extensive reading and comedy. But um, that Dave Chappelle quote, everything's funny till it happens to you. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, and as a comedian, you're playing a numbers game, and you're you are, especially if you go after big laughs, you are. There's always going to be a couple of people, even if you're not going to have big laughs, there's going to be a couple of people who just, whatever reason, they're not in the mood, or they don't like your face, or their hair, or whatever. When your comedy is 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 your comedy amoral? Do you consider your comedy amoral? Because all that's really at stake for you is getting a big laugh by provoking people such that they laugh despite themselves. Or is there a glimmer of morality? Because because basically you're you're. I mean, I think you're basically politically not far away from me. Mm. You just don't nuke it, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's a joke. Before any people listening in get in touch, um, is my. I think comedy should be allowed to exist in an amoral universe. I I personally uh, think that an audience won't laugh at something that is mean spirited or they take as bullying. And um, I also don't like the feeling of being labelled a, a, a bully. And I, I try not, I really try not to just, because it's, it's easy to just 
shit on something in complete ignorance of what it is. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to be like, this is funny, but, you know, there's still stuff at stake here. There's still mm-hmm. humans on the end of all this stuff. Um, so maybe that you're right. Maybe there is a glimmer of morality. I think there is a morality underpinning it because there's, because it, you know, I won't just go on and wang on about something and then think, well, this audience are a bunch of snowflake cocks. I'm going to go online and, and fucking post my video and then get YouTube metalhead scum to follow me on Twitter and that's my audience, which people now do nowadays. Like, you know, that, that, is, a, that is an option for, pe- for me if I wanted to do it. So, there, yeah, you're right. There is, there is morality there because I, I just don't care what... I just don't care if people think I'm terrible because I'm, I'm trying to be my funniest version of myself. You know, I'm not... This is not... I didn't do comedy to be likes. Maybe aside from the level of getting a laugh, maybe that's some kind of like, you know. That's it. You do. You are gleeful about pissing people off, and also you don't want to be liked. Yeah, I, or, or I, I know that I'm liked by the people that I like, and that's enough. I don't. Who wants to be liked by the public? This is another thing. I really don't want to be famous, which is a which is a kind of um, which is at odds with um, what people sort of see as me being on the cusp of. But I. I yeah, that, people that frequently tried to slam you with that post-Corbyn thing of like, that's yeah. the common thing to to slam a comedian with. It's like, well, I've never heard of you. Yeah. And you're like, so-called comedian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm quite happy for those people to think I'm so-called comedian. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I don't want this, I don't I don't need this to be, I don't, I don't need it to be, um, my self-worth comes from the, the quality of the material and the productivity rather than the approval I get from an audience yeah because i let's be honest i'm i'm saying some some awful things but why why would someone who wanted to be improved of say those things thanks man so that was finn taylor just such a sort of such an invigorating conversation do you know what i mean like he really there is so much about his this stuff about kind of his, his license to infuriate you know um and the fact that he just doesn't care what people think, but not in a posturing way. He just doesn't actually care what people think. <laughs> I think that's really... I think most people who bother pointing out they don't care what people think love to sort of wear it on their sleeve. But I think Finn's much smarter than that and much... Because he doesn't care, he never mentions it. So, listen, I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. You can follow him at Finn Taylor Comedy for the dankest memes available in showbiz, but mostly tour dates. Um, and go to fintaylor.com slash live to find out all about his uh, his tour, So My Wife, uh, which is beginning on the 17th of September in Leicester and then touring all over the UK, plus London dates TBC. That was that. Um, extra stuff, loads of extra stuff on the uh, on the Insiders, uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. We'll talk about the Bear Pit podcast, the secret way of how to break America, and which is something I ask him about rather than something he he proffered um and uh how to bring a knife to a roast battle because as you can imagine he's sensationally good at them so have a little look online for uh, for the roasts he's done um that's all available comedianscomedian.com slash insiders thanks to finn thank you to you for listening and sharing this and rating it on itunes especially if you are sorry on apple podcast um especially if you are outside of the uk uh where i have a smaller profile and plenty to give so uh please do that 
that. Uh, if you're a business person, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn as I continue to grow the uh, exciting quasi-corporate wings of uh, helping people cope like comedians cope and helping comedians cope like regular people cope. So um, all of those things uh, to come. So hook up with me there. It's at ComComPod on the socials as well. You know, uh, info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to get in touch. I am booking some new uh, guests coming up for the show. We're going to have a short break over summer while I do Edinburgh and then uh, we'll get slam back in with some very, very exciting ones coming up soon. So now is a great time to suggest people you think I am remiss in not having done, um, particularly if you have a personal connection to them and can convince them to do the show. And I don't just mean you met them once outside a gig. So uh, so there's that. Um, and thank you to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Thank you to Jake Crossland for logging it. Uh, your podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing and the music was by Rob Smouten. Uh, stick around for a postamble. I've got stuff to say. But other than that, speak to you next time. So I have a few things to tell you about. It was a big breath at the beginning of that, wasn't there? <gasps> Here are all my things. Um, so... Uh, let's do the business stuff first, which is the Edinburgh Festival. My God, I was on the phone talking to one of my agents and I was so, I was audibly giddy on the phone. And they were pretty giddy as well. Um, just the idea of getting back up. I was going up to Edinburgh anyway, just for three days, just for fun, just to wander the streets and smell the statues. And um, uh, I was going up anyway, just with friends. And now I'm going up anyway, just with friends. And I'm going to stay with them for three nights and uh, do lunch of sort of afternoon shows of stuff. And how exciting is that to be doing a show where you put together your favourite bits of previously existing shows? God, imagine, imagine how good you could be if you took your two favourite hours of comedy and then just did the best bits between them. My God. So that's very exciting. Um, so I'm going to find somewhere else to live for the second half of that. And that should be fun. Um, and there is already, I've, I mean, listen, we're going to have spreadsheet day on Monday, Monday the, and let's look at the numbers, 16, 17, 18, 19, Monday the 19th, over at the ComCom Facebook group, we will have spreadsheet day, by which time you will see a lot of the, the stuff, the, the Monkey Barrel will have released all of their shows, and I believe there are a lot of them. Uh, there are other people doing other things. Not many of them seem to be connected to edfringe.com. I've had a look on there. And that's the classic issue, isn't it? Do you put yourself on that website for 180 quid or 200 quid or something um, when it's all such a total gamble this year? And uh, yes, there's other sort of more interesting conversations to get into about the efficacy of that website and that organisation and the extent to which it serves the artists at Edinburgh. There's Oh, that's a... A whole big can of furry worms, as Armando Yanucci would say. Um, but uh, leaving that aside for the moment, what a joy, what a joy to be up there. What a joy to be, to have that on the, have that on the, in the calendar and be able to look forward to it. Oh, I'm absolutely simpering. So, um, so that'll be good, eh? Uh, the other stuff is, shall I tell you about the underquacking? Oh, now I've mentioned it. It's such a preposterous term, isn't it? Maybe I should just not mention it and try and turn it into some stuff and tell you about it if you come along and see me live. Maybe I'll do that. I was going to tell you all about the underquacking, not to mention the overquacking, but I might... Basically, let's without going too far into it, I think I've... Uh, in that, I always think of um, Scott Pilgrim this. You know, Scott Pilgrim pulls from his chest the sort of... Whatever it is, self-acceptance. I always think of pulling it from my chest as a sword, but I am... Feeling very self-accepty these days, guys, and um, and part of that is just recognizing that I do 
live in and embody and broadcast a sort of constant, ceaseless, barely perceptible chatter, uh, which is sort of the, all of the things, all of the noticing and the reflecting and the analysing that I some, that sometimes helps and sometimes massively hinders and exhausts me and the people around me. Um, but I gave a name to my pain. It's called the underquacking. <laughs> and I thought of it uh, because I was at a campsite where we could faintly, almost imperceptibly hear the noise of hundreds of ducks. And it was near a farm and it was near a lake. And it's not inconceivable that it was ducks, but it could have been some sort of mad auditory hallucination. Like when you hear the kind of like your your cistern's broken and it's going in the toilets and it sounds like people whispering. You get that, right? And the uh, and the smell of bird feathers, right? Um, so uh, that second one was a joke. So that was so we called it the underquacking, and I've realised that I live in my very own underquacking. And in articulating it, I have recognised a thing which is it's sort of up there with the is it ADHD? Do I have a special brain like everyone else? Which is sort of reasonable to assume, given that we all do a weird job and we've self-selected as people that prioritise weird comedians. I mean, who all seem to be uh, diagnosed with ADHD at the moment. We have nonetheless all. Uh, self-selected within that category by uh, prioritising a life full of adventure and no repetitive tasks, such as uh, uh, such as is afforded us by comedy. So who knows? Anyway, this is all over the place. I, I, what I did there was I spoke, <laughs> I tried to talk about the underquacking without telling you what it was, told you badly half of what it was, and then linked it to my sort of ongoing concern as to whether I have ADD or ADHD which I wasn't going to mention in public, mostly because it just it's just not very special, is it? Because everyone's bloody got it. So what's the point? What's the point in having a, a rare and exotic condition if it's neither rare nor exotic, but just a pain in the ass? Um, so uh, let's assume for now I don't <laughs> and uh, and carry on. Have I even mentioned it before? I don't think I've mentioned it in a post handle before, but um, I was made aware uh, that people listen to these. <laughs> So it's twice recently people have referred to them, one obliquely, the other one very directly. And uh, someone even suggested that they were their favourite bit, which makes me think, really, I should be doing one of those endless rambling Monday morning podcasts where you just talk about what's on your mind. I don't think that would serve me or you particularly, but who knows? Anyway, plenty of stuff going on. Not all of it inextricably linked to the barely perceptible quacking of thousands of ducks, but some of it. Very excited about Edinburgh and very, uh, yeah, as I said, I'll do a little micro episode and get and get all um, uh, hyped about that when I get sent all the stuff. So that'll be in your feed probably by the time you hear this. Um, other things to say. Uh, oh, yeah. How do I cut and shut the show, guys? Gang, team. How do I do it? I'm, I'm just going to get my favourite bits. If I just get my favourite bits of two different shows and staple them together in a sensible order... That's enough, right? Because, A, you don't need to have a theme. It's interesting what Finn said on the show about Edinburgh likes... Oh, is it in the Insiders? I can't remember where I put it. Um, Edinburgh likes a conclusion, but tours don't like a conclusion. I wonder how specials go into that. Do you need a conclusion? My instinct is to write a conclusion, because I think I'm bloody Christopher Nolan, but I'm clearly not. Um, but... And, and also... If you're going to, it's funny to think to myself, this show, End Of, was very specifically about two things woven together. I don't know if it tracked. I don't know if anyone understood that, but it was about those things. It definitely was clear. And Primer was much more kind of smudgy and all over the place. But to think to myself, should I, will it irreparably damage the the core sentiment 
the narrative through line of of end of if I chop and change bits. To to think that is to presuppose that anyone noticed the narrative core or gave two shits about it. So maybe it is as simple as um, uh, relaxing the muscle in me, which goes, this must mean something, and simply doing all of my favourite stuff and then run that in for a few months and uh, and get to a stage where I go, yeah, yeah, that's all just naturally found its own shape. That's the goal, isn't it? Is to go, here's all my best stuff. I'm going to... I'm going to just go out there and do... That's a, that's a kind of creative technique I did along the way. When trying to write an hour, just have a great 40 minutes and then let it breathe and overrun and you'll find out what you're actually talking about. So maybe I'll just do that. I can't wait. I can't wait. I hope you'll come and see it and I hope I haven't erred. Erred? Erred? I hope I have made the correct decision by not taking a late... Uh, a later time slot because there was some chat about like should I go in the evening and if I go in the evening maybe get people after work but is anyone at work are they working from home are the sorts of people likely to come and see me far more likely to be working from home and think yeah I'll just skive off at three and go and see Stu so I mean that's another that's another kettle of worms isn't it thinking to yourself do you do to what extent do I make decisions based around trying to make my individual days relatively anxiety free it's much easier for me to do a sort of lunchtimey afternoon show because then I spend less of the day keyed up and worried about it and I have a better life. But surely I should just <laughs> prioritise working hard and doing the best thing rather than tripping lightly through the day. But then I always have. Do you know what I realised? The day at a therapy session, I realised I don't have any regrets. I have personal social regrets. I don't have any Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.